When Tillamook ice cream beckons you to the freezer aisle, which irresistibly creamy flavor do you choose? While you're thinking, try not to fuck up the glass. Tillamook ice cream. Extraordinary dairy. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. It's Groundhog Day! The movie, Groundhog Day. It's Groundhog Day! The movie, Groundhog Day. It's Groundhog Day! The movie, Groundhog Day. everybody and welcome to unspooled i'm amy nicholson and i'm paul Shear, and this is the show where we are endeavoring to find the 100 best films of all time we've already gone through the afi top 100 list we are now working through films of the world in little mini series uh this mini series that we're in the middle of right now is called couple goals uh we have watched a few great films so far about couples but we felt that we couldn't uh not acknowledge the very special holiday that happens here in the beginning of February. Amy, happy Groundhog Day episode. Happy Groundhog Day episode to you. I'm glad we're doing this because I think there's a beautiful couple at the center of this movie, and I can't wait to talk about them. And I'm glad that you and I are together, babe. We got this. I love it. And you know what? I want to talk about two other movies that are in this film's orbit. We're going to get into Groundhog Day a lot in just a couple of minutes, but... um, First of all, I think that, you know, in this year, 2021, uh, we have to acknowledge that Palm Springs was a big hit that came out during uh, COVID times and revolves around a similar premise. In many ways, uh, revolves around a premise that this film was originally based in. Uh, Groundhog Day was supposed to just start in the middle of Phil Connors being in Puxatawney. And that's something that uh, Palm Springs kind of does with Andy Samberg's character. But I feel like there's a, a real interesting connection between these two films. I love them both, actually. I think Palm Springs is so well done. But I felt like we just needed to mention it. And probably as we get into our uh, best films of the year around the Oscars, I don't know if that will be an Oscar nominee, but um, it is worth at least uh, shining a light of the similarities between these two films. It is. It is a very, very, very fun movie. It is. It, it's it, Groundhog's Day set at a wedding. If you haven't seen this yet, and if you've ever been at a wedding that is mildly uncomfortable, knowing people around the corner, like I don't know, talk, getting stuck in the random chit chat, and also being in Palm Springs, a place that I admire but find exhausting admire. after thirty six hours. I admire Palm Springs. I would like to be a person who liked Palm Springs better. I'm not, 
Yeah. And so being stuck in Palm Springs, there's an added, that to me, that becomes a bit of a horror movie. Well, I think it's this idea, and, and this is what Groundhog Day kind of does as well, which is it, it's a, you can't get out. Like there's something, there is the sun and the sand of Palm Springs that is as oppressive as the cloudy day in Puxatawney in Groundhog Day. And I feel like you need that world. You can't be having a Groundhog Day in New York City. There's too many things to do there. And I feel like you need to cut it out. You know, you need to be on this little island. Um, I also just want to talk, because you and I were texting about this, um, we're talking about couple goals and couples in films. And I can't uh, talk enough about how much I loved this movie, A Promising Young Woman, which I feel like was almost a deconstruction of a typical rom-com and also a movie about couples in, in many different ways. Um, and I just have been fascinated by it. And I wanted to acknowledge that before we got into this episode as well. Oh, that movie is so, so fun. I'm glad you saw it. I'm glad you loved it. That movie... I almost feel like I became in a couple in that movie. Like I became a couple with that movie. You know, you're mm. like I felt so personally involved in the relationship in that movie between Carrie Mulligan and Bill and Bo Burnham, which I don't want to talk about much at all, yeah. except to say, like, I don't know if I've fallen in love with a couple to the emotional extent that I did in that movie. And it is it is a watch. I'll just say it is a capital W watch. You know, and we were talking about this on our text, like maybe there is room for us to tackle that as like a bonus episode here, a shorter episode where we can just kind of talk about this movie because I think it fits so well into what we're talking about, but also uh, definitely want people to check it out. It's a, it's a movie you have to check out. So maybe right now we just, it's a call to arms, go uh, find this movie. It's on VOD. You can watch it anywhere you can and, and, uh, and get ready. Cause I feel like this will be a nice addendum if we are allowed to add one more to the mix. It might be worthy of a discussion, a bigger discussion. I agree. I agree. And I cannot stress enough. It, we should be able to break all the spoilers in there. So please watch it ahead of time. If we do this, we, we yeah. really need to talk about that movie. That movie needs to be talked about. And I, I actually do think that movie will probably get a couple Oscar nominations. I, I mean, over so. here at the LA film critics, we gave it best screenplay and best actress. Yeah. I, I would agree with both of those. And I would say, um, go into it knowing as little as you can. I didn't know much about it at all. I thought I had an idea of what I thought it was about. And then I was very wrong. And I love, I love having a movie really unwrapped for me. And I know that's something that you get to do a lot more, Amy, than I do, which is you get to see films at festivals and you, it's that a, a beauty of sitting down and not knowing a thing. And I think that's the real way you should watch a movie. And I, and I fell in love with this movie even more, I think, because of that. Ugh, you're breaking my heart a bit because I saw both Palm Springs and Promising Woman that exact way at Sundance last year. Ugh. And so <sighs> we're at the we're at the month where I didn't get to go to Sundance this year and tromp around in the snow and see a snowball for the one time I get to see a snowball yeah. all year and and soak in all of the movies that will wind up being really important. And so yes, my heart well, is a little bit broken. I also saw Palm Springs without knowing the premise of that as well. And I was very happy about that. And I'm also bummed that I'm not able to go to Sundance this year. I have a film that is in Sundance, but uh, I guess now there was going to be a drive-in, but because of COVID being so terrible, uh, there's not even a drive-in anymore. So it's going to be like a whole virtual red carpet situation, but some really great movies. I'm looking forward to that Patty Harrison movie with Ed Helms, some interesting things going on. So still film is pushing forward, even though, no one's in the seats. And I think all the premieres are maybe on your computer. I mean, at least my premiere is on a computer. 
Oh, well, at least we're going to have a lot of really good movies to catch up in 2022, too. And we, we need them back at the theater. I'm hoping that stuff will cycle back around. That movies that came out virtually, we can like slip them in. Like, did you want to see this big? Because here it is. I don't think that's going to happen. But I'm going to tell you this oh, much. Uh, I'm an optimist. I, I don't. I, I think the only ones that would get that kind of play would be the big ones, like a Tenant or a Wonder Woman. And I feel like people are like, no, saw it, done. And Tenant already was out in the theater. But I, I, I mean, I'm an optimist too. I would love it, but I feel like you're not going to get that. Oh uh, that means the only film that I've seen this whole year once COVID started in the theater was Tenant. Because remember, we rented a theater just yes. so we could see it, just me and my boyfriend. That will be my one theatrical experience for the longest stretch of my entire life. It's like you're going through a breakup with movies, Amy. I mean, even oh. though you're seeing it at home, it's it's a different it's a different uh, relationship now. Oh. So when I think about all of the groundhog dinners that you have as a critic, like the number of dinners you have that are just popcorn somebody gave you at a screening. Oh, yes. And how much I was sick of popcorn and how much I took popcorn for granted. I understand you, Bill Murray. I understand you in a new way. I want this. I need this sensation back in my life. I will tell you this much. I did figure out the recipe of how to make movie theater popcorn at my house. I will share it with you. It's great. You Please. have to buy about three or four different things. Uh, and it's Are they it's all well chemicals with long, hard to pronounce names? Yeah, but it's really good. <laughs> it's really, really good when you make it. It's a, not an everyday treat, but when you do make it, it's so good. All right. So, Amy, are you ready to unspool it? Yeah. Great. All right. So, Amy, I think it's about time for us to get into the episode. And um, maybe we should just see if this groundhog sees a shadow and... Uh, Unspool it. Okay. All right. So, uh, so good to catch up on all that sort of stuff. So many things going on. It made me really enjoy movies. And talking about a movie that I really enjoy, it is this one. Oh, I cannot wait to talk to you about it. Amy, are you ready to unspool it? Very much so. The year is 1993. Buckingham Palace opens its doors to the public. An FBI siege on the Waco compound of religious sect, the Branch Davidians, lasts 51 days and ends in 82 casualties. The World's Health Organization estimates 14 million people worldwide are infected with the AIDS virus. Bill Clinton is inaugurated as president of the United States. An oil tanker spills over 85,000 tons of crude oil off the coast of Scotland. And this year's notable films are Jurassic Park, Mrs. Doubtfire, Schindler's List, Dazed and Confused, and today's subject, Groundhog Day. Let's take a listen to a clip. What about me, Phil? Do you know me too? I know all about you. You like producing, but you hope for more than Channel 9 Pittsburgh. Well, everyone knows that. You like boats, but not the ocean. You go to a lake in the summer with your family up in the mountains. There's a long wooden dock and a boathouse with boards missing from the roof. And a place you used to crawl underneath to be alone. You're a sucker for French poetry and rhinestones. You're very generous. You're kind to strangers and children. And when you stand in the snow, you look like an angel. How are you doing this? I told you, I wake up every day right here, right in Punxsutawney, and it's always February 2nd. And there's nothing I can do about it. What do we got? What's in the docket? Who directed it? Who wrote it? Who's in it? What's it about? Let's do it. 
Groundhog Day. It is directed by Harold Ramis and it is written by Danny Rubin. Now the story here, Groundhog Day is the story of a cynical weatherman played by the one and only Bill Murray. He travels to a small town called Puxatawney, Pennsylvania for an event that he considers beneath him. It's the annual February 2nd Groundhog Winter Prediction. Bill Murray cannot wait to leave this tiny town, except that he has to wait because when he wakes up the next day, it is February 2nd again. And again, and again, and it does not matter whether he spends the day eating cake or jumping off buildings or using his power to seduce women, he is stuck there. And then what happens is after the first cute women that he uh, seduces using his new powers, he narrows in on the one woman who will not sleep with him no matter how many days go by. It is his sweet, optimistic, life-giving news producer played by Annie McDowell. Now, Paul, I have a question, which is how long would you wait to be in love with Annie McDowell? Because, you know, if you caught this movie on the weekend of February 12th, 1993, when it came out, you actually had a ready-made answer. It was right at the top of the Billboard charts. And it honestly needs no introduction. Just sing along. Amazing song. Amazing. By the way, talking about 1993 as a great year for film. I mean, I know we often talk about 1994 as being a great year for film, but 93 also equally good. This is like a, a real, um, a real like peak of mainstream cinema. Like just listing off those films that came out this year. We, we've talked about a lot of them here on the podcast. Um, and yeah, this mainstream movie, is really the right word for it. It was like, let's make stuff that everybody likes, which I would have thought was kind of like, basic and rolling my eyes. And I probably did think that back in 1993 because I was a very sarcastic child. But right now I'm like, that sounds great. Can we all go into a movie theater and love something? But I think the idea is it's, it's like high quality mainstream, right? I think right now, a lot of times when you think about mainstream, you think about this, like I always view it as this four quadrant uh, type of film, which to explain that it's sort of like, it's good for kids. It's good for adults. It's good for old people. Good for men. Good for women. It's like, it's trying to hit every market. And what it does is it doesn't deliver anything where all these films actually do. Um, well, you know, some of them have like a little bit more of a niche, like a Days and confused, but they're just good movies that are broad. And, and I feel like we sometimes lose that because we've gone through such a cycle of like, well, does it work for everybody? Do we understand why? And one of the core things about this movie that I absolutely love, and I really appreciate on this rewatch is we don't know why it's happening. Mm -hmm. We don't know why Groundhog Day is happening and we don't endeavor to explain it. And I know that there was a version of the draft that explained that Bill Murray had like a jilted lover who put a curse on him. And I'm so happy it's not in there. It just makes this movie more special because like we don't need to understand why. Like we don't need to understand why Jim Carrey can't lie or, you know, I guess that's because his kid makes a wish. But like that, this idea, like we can have a magical movie without having some sort of you know, bigger thing. I, I think that an audience is smart enough to be like, okay, this is the premise of the movie. We can go with this. We don't need, we don't need it to be like a very clear black and white explanation. I mean, it sounds like what you're talking about right now, it it actually really connects and like the death of what we think modern screenwriting is right now in the mm -hmm. year of our Lord 2021, which is four quadrant 
calculated, probably some sort of rising action in the Star Wars model once again, like who's our hero and what are they going to do? And explaining everything to the audience, you know, the things that I think people are told to do to their script right now, when you go back, it's not what makes our favorite movies work. I think we even touched on this when we were talking about when Harry met Sally, that we don't, there's no extra plot thing keeping them apart. It's, it's simple. It's just, here are these two people trying to get along. She's not working for like the newspaper that's bringing down his like political organization. Yeah. Scripts are too Baroque, man. Because they're explaining too much and trying to do too much and trying to please too many people. And I think quality is is the is the character that goes across all the quadrants. If something's just really good, if something's just really good, you don't We're need in. all of this stuff that you're told you need as a crutch. Well, I'll, I'll even talk about this movie in some general respects. Uh, obviously, I think everyone who's listening has seen the film. So I think we can just jump around a little bit. And this movie is kind of built in a way to kind of jump around. Um, I think this movie is really smart because... I'm going to liar, liar, probably more than I should already twice in like the last yeah, few minutes. But I'm surprised. Um, should I have watched Liar, Liar to be ready to talk to you about? No, the I just think that, I, I just think that there's these movies that have like a big gimmick attached to it, right? And like, and this is about the same time. And like, you know, when you meet Jim Carrey in that movie, he is a liar. He's such a liar. He's you know, he's he you know, and he's such a a caricature, right? Or, or Eddie Murphy in that movie, thousand words where he's such a fast talker. He's got to lose his words to understand what words really mean. All that kind of bullshit here. We meet Bill Murray and he's playing a role that I think is prime for being broad, a weatherman, right? A, a local news weatherman. And he is playing it pretty straight. Like he's fun on air. He's not overtly, um, like super comical. It's not even like Steve Martin in LA story. It's like, it's just pretty normal, but fun. Like he's fun. You get like, he's fun. And then he's when a you meet good him, weatherman. Like he's actually playful. He's like blowing on the, he, yeah. he, he's good at his job, but not like a buffoon, right? Like he's, yeah. he is competent. And, and, and we learn very uh, early on in the film that he has aspirations to get out of that and do something bigger and be, you know, a reporter. But He's not even that much of a dick. Like he's not, I guess what I'm saying is he's not overplaying it on either side, right? He's not like this buffoonish weatherman. He's not this disgruntled person. Like he's got an ego. He is a little bit, um, you know, I mean, they call him a prima donna, but he doesn't seem to me like a caricature. And again, we talked about this in Harry Mattel. Like it's, I can connect to this character a little bit more because I'm like, oh, he's not like a bad guy who deserves this. He's just kind of, yeah, he's got a little bit of an edge to him. I mean, would you agree with that? You're exactly right. I'm so glad we're talking about this right now because when I put on this movie to rewatch it, in my head it was like about how an absolute fucking creep learns to be a nice person. Like mm-hmm. that's what I thought it was. You know, that's how I kind of remembered it. Yeah. That it, I think I was blending it almost more with something like Scrooged, you know, where Bill right. Murray is an awful person who has right. to learn how to be a good person. Or like, yeah. In the movies you're pointing out, like Liar Liar, you know from the very beginning what is the quality they don't have that they have to learn during this like heightened insane process. And I was surprised too. I made the exact same note. Like he's not that bad of a guy. It's not a jerk learning to be nice. It's a pretty average human who has a lot of qualities I have, you know, learning to be more sincere, learning to appreciate the life that he has that's already not that bad. Well, I think this is the kind of root of this movie that I really saw for the first time in looking at it a little bit more, you know, critically, which is like, this is a movie about appreciating the beauty in every day, right? Like, and, and I think we live in a world and, and I think maybe it's because of 
the world that we're in right now, this kind of COVID quarantine world where we're being forced to stay in place a little bit more, where we're learning like, oh, there's beauty in a lot more of these basic things that we've forgotten about because we're always jumping in cars and going to places. And this movie is really about that. It's sort of like, yes, he has these things and he's not in the moment, right? Really, That's like the core of it. It's like, we'll just be in the moment, connect with people um, don't look outside the window, you know, and there is something about that that I really appreciated in this watch. I think like, that's really what I think one of the big core principles of this movie is. You know, I think you could also say that you can get in a rut of your own life. You're always looking for the bigger, better deal or whatever the, the same thing may be. But it's such a simple idea that this movie is kind of pushing forward. Yeah, the idea that we are surrounded by a community. You know, he's surrounded by this community in this tiny town in in Pennsylvania that he doesn't know very well. And he gets to know the people of this community. You know, it's like you start at the movie kind of walking by all these extras and not really knowing who they are, knowing much about them, noticing some of them, not noticing others. And by the end of it, he's gotten to know people that we haven't even noticed yet. Like he's really gotten to know the people that he lives with in his community, which, uh, you know, I, I don't know the people who live on my street. I couldn't tell you all the people who live on my street. I have no idea. And there's this sense of like, if you had that time, would you actually bother to make a human connection? When I can leave my house, will I be right. better at making those human connections? And the universality of his flaw that it, I think it affects all of us is, I think, what part of what makes this movie so beautiful, especially on this rewatch. You're not like, here's a here's an externalized bad quality that I can pretend they don't have for 90 minutes and I can watch this guy get yes. better at this thing that's definitely not me. Like, oh, no, I very much recognize myself in the movie. And if there yeah. is a line that I think serves as kind of the accidental curse, you know, the like the the liar, liar prayer, if you will, I don't believe that this line has the magic, but I think it sums up what needs to happen, which is, you know, Bill Murray goes to his day. He does his very first speech about the groundhog. He's, you know, he's okay. He's not bad. He half phones it fine. in, but it's but fine. It, it's, it's serviceable. Yeah, serviceable. And at the very end, Andy McDowell, his producer, just says, okay, want to try it again without the sarcasm. And that's just it. Oh, wow. Can I didn't do even. Yes. do life again without the sarcasm? I love and that. And he doesn't. Think about but that. he does. Yeah. yeah. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean. Every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. You know, it's really interesting because, again, just going back to this idea that we can live in a world where we're so um, obsessed about what's next that we don't just appreciate what we are actually doing. And that doesn't mean that you don't have to have aspirations, right? It just means that, and I think this movie does show that you can have, you can embrace certain things. It's not like he, it's not like, oh, he just needs to become friendly. It's like, you are so busy looking 
to, yeah, what's next that you don't see what's right in front of you that could actually make your next even better. Exactly. And what popped up for me in this watch is another line that I hadn't really noticed that's trying to make the same point about universality. He's sitting down. I think he's at the bowling alley getting drunk with those two guys. I'm going to call them the morons and I feel bad. I'm only One of them, them is the Rick Dukeman, who I love. Yeah. Rick Dukeman, a great actor, been in a bunch <laughs> of stuff. I got to work with him and peppered him with a million questions about being in Beverly Hills Cop and Groundhog Day and everything else. He's <sighs> been in every... Every Everything. great comedy and Harold Ramis' uh, favorite. Everything. So I apologize for calling him the moron, but it is what Bill Murray calls them as a collective. But he has that line. They're talking about good and bad and optimism and the way you move through life. And he, he flat out says, like, this is this this is a thing. This Groundhog Day that you're going through is a thing that affects all of us. Some guys would look at this glass and they would say, you know, that glass is half empty. Other guys would say, that glass is half full. I think you as a glasses half empty kind of guy, am I right? What would you do if you were stuck in one place and every day was exactly the same and nothing that you did mattered? That about sums it up for me. I, I love that scene. And I want to just kind of talk about this movie to get one step out and, and acknowledge how this movie comes out and what the effect of this movie is, which is Harold Ramis and Bill Murray known as this great team, right? They've worked together on screen and Stripes and Ghostbusters. Uh, Harold Ramis has directed Bill Murray in Caddyshack. And, and basically, I think you could point to some of the best early performances of Bill Murray's career were aligned with Harold Ramis. And, uh, and this is the movie that separated them, that broke them apart. And the reason why it broke them apart was because they had a different view of what they wanted this movie to be. Harold Ramis uh, wanted this movie to be about love and where it's interesting because we're talking about couple goals and the power of love and how love can kind of connect you. And I think Bill Murray, probably in this moment, trying to get into this Bill Murray that we know now, wanted to make it a little bit more uh, philosophical, a little bit more, um, not edgy, but, you know, really kind of get into how we as humans like live the same pattern day after day after day, but we don't acknowledge it. And we, we are not yeah, like expanding more ourselves. Yes. And, and they're both kind of entering even into uncharted territory for themselves. So it means a lot personally, both, you know, they both come out yeah. of second city where there is no sentimentality, you know, and they're both yeah. trying to become sentimental and it means something personal to them to try to well, do it the right way, what they consider the right way. Yeah. No, and I think that both of these guys are actually very much, in tune with um, emotional parts of themselves. I got to work with Harold Ramis and I'll probably talk about that about nine more times in this podcast because I did ask him a million questions about this movie and he was happy to answer every one of them. Um, but there's something about this movie where when the film came out, Bill Murray was upset because he felt like it was more of a comedy than he wanted it to be. Um, and they just stopped talking. Like that was it. And this movie is a huge hit and it continues to be this epic hit they um they did reunite on Harold Ramis's deathbed um which was you know really special and and I know that his daughter wrote a book about this relationship that Harold had with his whole family and his world but she talks about this relationship with Bill Murray and I think anyone that was in Harold's orbit even in interviews and articles would tell you that he was so upset about this um this breakup that they had. This yeah. is like this. It was you know, 21 years, 21 years. I mean, it, he was still talking about it, you know, in the years up until right up until like he was talking about it. Like you would talk about losing your mom or your dad. Yeah. Because these two really were 
connected. And I, I think, so I wanted to kind of put that on the table because I think looking at how they both saw the movie, what the movie came out to be and how they, uh, and how Bill Murray plays certain scenes, I think it'll be interesting to look at it through that kind of a lens. And I also will say that, um, you know, I will probably mix some things that were told to me by Harold and some things that I've read, but I will keep, uh, I will try to keep, uh, what is private private, but I will say this, um, I think it's very well known that Bill Murray had an exceptionally hard time making this movie in his life. Like he was having a shitty lifetime. Um, he was and, going through a divorce. Yeah. And this is, and this is a time where I remember like Bill Murray was like on Larry King one night and he kind of almost had a breakdown, started crying on air about, you know, being away from his family and his kids. Like I think Bill Murray's an incredibly emotional person and and there's something here that this was not, you know, who knows what it was. So I think that like Harold got lumped into that divorce in a weird way. Like Bill Murray, like left this part of himself. But I wanted to talk about one of the the ways that Bill Murray was really nasty on the set. And this to one of your favorite people, Michael Shannon. <gasps> My boy. He's so young, isn't he? He's, He's just so, so young, young in this movie. I mean, I'm comfortably I say, young. I like him as a craggy old man. I will say this, that Harold Ramis has a, an amazing eye for talent. And when you look at all of his films, it's populated by some great character actors. Uh, Robin Duke, who I just love, and she was fantastic uh, recently on uh, Schitt's Creek, too. She runs a store that Dan Levy starts working. But like all these kind of SCTV people, all these great comedy people just populating the world. Uh, and of course, like Stephen Tobolowsky. But the story here is um, Michael Shannon, new actor in this film. Just a and, Chicago theater kid. Yeah, right. Little Chicago he, theater kid. So, uh, you know, so excited to be here. And I guess Bill Murray uh, was listening to uh, the talking heads on like a little boom box. Uh, in Which is takes. Michael Shannon's favorite band. I've, I oh. once talked to him about everything he took from his career from David Byrne. Oh, really? Oh, mm -hmm. wow. Two guys I with giant heads, you know, commanding attention. Oh, I love this. And he went over to Bill Murray and was like, hey, you, you like the talking heads? He acknowledged him in a way that made him believe that Bill Murray thought him to be stupid, right? And so yeah, I think he really was like sarcastic, but also like playing to him like a child. And he felt so embarrassed by it. And again, a very typical kind of Phil behavior, right? Like not like yeah. the way that kind of Phil treats Chris Elliott. Or by the way, Garfield. Who's... I'm picturing Bill Murray's Garfield turning to Michael Shannon and saying, yes, I like the talking head. <laughs> and so like this is this moment that really like crushed Michael Shannon. And then he told Harold about it. And Harold obviously uh, doesn't stand for any of that kind of stuff. And then told like Bill Murray, like, hey, you were really rude to this actor. Apologize. And then... <laughs> Then, like, Bill Murray had to apologize to Michael Shannon, which made Michael Shannon even feel worse. Uh, like, so, like, it was just, like, this one terrible moment that Michael Shannon had to live in again and again and again. So I just love uh, that this is, there is a a little bit of this um, Michael Shannon story in here, too. Uh, I thought you'd enjoy. I appreciate that. Let's just hear a little clip of his joy in this movie. It's, it's This is right after Phil gives him wrestling tickets. Excuse me, Mr. Connors. Hey, Fred, how was the wedding? Well, I just wanted to thank you for making Debbie go through with it and everything. All I did was fan the flame of her passion for you, Fred. <laughs> you are the best. No, you are the best. Rita, this is Debbie and Fred Kleiser. Hi. Here you go, kids. Congratulations. What is this? No way. No way. WrestleMania! No way! No way! <laughs> 
Mr. Connors, you're a real pal. Oh, this is the <laughs> best. You, while we're talking about this dynamic between Ramus and 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 Murray, gosh, even just telling him to apologize to somebody like that's 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 what you tell like your best friend when they're really fucking up. Like that's like a sign mm-hmm. of an intimate, I think, relationship. You either have to be very far apart and be a stranger or be very close. I feel like to have that conversation with somebody. Oh yeah. And, and, uh, and it makes me really sad because watching this, I kept thinking about their friendship and how it felt like it was reflected in this movie. I mean that there's, you know, a plot towards the end where Bill Murray, his character, Phil becomes really obsessed with trying to keep a homeless man alive. Mm -hmm. You know, like how am I going to help this guy who is fated for something bad? You know, who like, I really can't reach him and can I reach him and can I get him soup? And he puts this weight on his shoulders of like, how can I, how can I help this person? And, you know, they have that line, like, you know, sometimes it's just people's time. And the the frustration of that, I think it's just because I just watched that documentary Belushi, which is okay. It's not that great about John Belushi, but it really had me thinking like, wow, Ramus and, and Murray went through that. They had a friend that they loved so much and they tried so much to keep him alive. And they had both only, you know, less than a decade before this movie had gone through something like, how do you help a person who can't be helped? Yeah. You know, and and I don't know. I mean, I'm sure I'm projecting a lot, but I've suddenly felt like this is them talking about Belushi and, and trying to help him. It kind of tucked into this movie, like about the limits of what you can do for another person. Well, OK, so this is my knowledge of Harold, which is he's an incredibly spiritual guy. You know, uh, you know, he is like a, a Buddhist, you know, like a, when I was on set with him, he had prayer beads, like a very in touch spiritual guy. And I think that, you know, one of the things that I mean, I will just say this, that working with him was one of the best experiences ever because he is this guy. Like he is a guy who there's a guitar on the back of his or at least at this point, there's a guitar on the back of his director's chair. He's playing songs in the middle of things. His kids are on set. He has like this loving relationship with his kids. Like just like they are in his arms, like hugging them. Like there is this vibe of every night he would be like, and I've worked on plenty of TV shows and movies and I've only experienced this here. So I can speak to it in this sense. Always wanted to go out to dinner. Always wanted to go out to dinner and, and, um, and would hold court at dinner. And when I was there, um, uh, Human Giant had just premiered and we had a premiere party in like his uh, hotel room for Human Giant, which was like awesome. Just the best kind of guy, but he is a very spiritual guy. And I think when he's talking about this, I, I think like there's just some things in life that you can't control, right? And that that the death of that person is like, there's a line where Bill Murray's like, I'm God, I can do this, I can do that, I can do this. He's like, but there's just some things that are out of your control. And I feel like we can obsess about those things. We can work on those things. There's a deleted scene in this movie where Bill Murray is like literally studying chest x-rays and looking to see if he could heal this man. And there's another deleted scene where he writes a, like um, an obituary for him and puts it in the, the old man's um, jacket. And it says like, you know, here at 802, this, you know, it was a, it's almost like a, it's poetic. It's a little poetic scene. Actually, let's listen to a clip of it. What's this? Every night by cold bricks glow, I watch the shadow rising from this old man in the snow. At 8.02, we let it go. He's gone. At 8.02, we let it go. Wow. It's nice. And I just think there's something really beautiful about that, like that spiritual nature of like knowing when to let things go. Also, just like knowing like, look, 
embracing what the truth is and then and, and having that time with this person like he almost enjoys the time with him instead of trying to fight it which goes back to the farewell of it all right like do you just enjoy the day or do you you know or are you trying to you know create something that's not there i don't know there's something I, that scene really stuck out to me in a, in a major way this time and i almost felt like it was a little bit misplaced in the film i almost feel like it should be moved up a little bit like a little bit like maybe like i was kind of thinking that too yeah yeah, yeah it, it seems be too weird just a little bit it's right at the very end it feels like his last stage yeah, I don't know what it was. I feel like it yeah. should have been moved up by five minutes. I yeah, I don't it know. It should come yeah. between like when he stops trying to seduce Andy McDowell for fake and when he starts trying to seduce yes. her for real. It should come yes. somewhere around there. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Yeah, there's something. There's just something there that I just like, okay, because I believe that when he brings the Danish to set in the coffee, that's before the old man. And I feel like the old man should be before that, if that makes sense. I agree. Maybe they thought I was just too sad to put it that early. He had to love him yeah. a little bit more. But yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I, we're totally in alignment about this. And uh, I mean, from what you're describing about Ramus and from what I've read about him, he seems like a person who aspired to live his life the way Bill Murray does at the end. Like mm -hmm. I was reading a list of his hobbies and his hobbies are insane. Like he can do the Sunday Times crossword in 20 minutes. He can beat the computer at Scrabble. He can fence. He can drum. He can speak Greek to the, when he goes to his local coffee shop, he could speak yeah. Greek to the owners. He taught himself how to ski by watching skiing on television. He made wow. his own hats out of fleece. Um, he can do an emergency tracheotomy. Like he just taught himself to do everything. Like he said once, you know, I've always wanted to experience everything. I've always wanted to be a millionaire by I was 40. I've wanted to be Cary Grant and Errol Flynn. I've wanted to conquer every woman and have her fall in love with me. I want to be president. I want to succeed in every conceivable way that our society has to offer. And I'm impressed that he didn't just have those ambitions, but he actually worked on them. Like, I would love to fence. I mean, yeah. I've never done a damned thing about it. But I, I like, I'm so in awe of the people who want a goal and actually pursue it. Well, you know, it's so interesting because I always reference this and I may have mentioned this a couple of times in the show, but I'll say it again because it's it's right now. Um, Harold Ramis is also the person who says to me this thing that I remember all the time, which is, um, you know, people were talking to him about his you know, career and and where you are and what you are trying to do. And he said this thing about how you should view your career, which is like fame isn't finite. Don't worry about if someone else gets something that doesn't mean that it's not going to, there's not room for you to get something. And I feel like that was his whole idea is like, there was a room for him, right? Um, he wanted to, you know, he didn't feel the pressure of it. And here's a guy who literally defines comedy in the eighties. I mean, you know, these movies that he's a part of, uh, and this comedy movement, you know, and, and he, they shake it like, up. Like, I'm not the biggest fan of some of his stuff. Like, I don't really love animal house, but you can't mm -hmm. deny that he took, the big studio comedy and he made it, you know, in his words, he like, he made it sloppier. He made it more chaotic. Yeah. He made it I mean, more anarchic Lampoon's... that it wasn't like the clear cut kind of, I don't know, Rock Hudson isn't a completely fair example, but I'll just say the kind of Rock Hudson comedy. Like he messed, he put his fingers in it. Well, I mean, look at those three films, right? Caddyshack, Animal House and uh, Vacation, right? Those three completely different types of films, but all have a similar uh energy to them like they all are this um you know they like it like he's he's versatile like it's not like oh he didn't make like three stoner movies right you know um yeah. uh so it's a, you know it's interesting and, and like forgive me like i want to i want to and i know it's not completely fair like part of me wants to draw a line between like animal house 
and I'll just say like QAnon, you know, like people who are like the people in charge don't know what they're doing. I know what's happening. You know, yeah. I think there there is something so anti-intellectual about some of an anti-establishment in his movies that freaks me out a little bit, just a little bit. Because I'm like, those guys don't always know what's happening. It's the way I felt about MASH. Like, do we really right. want to trust these guys with this? No. Um, <laughs> but you so Animal House and in particular just annoys the hell out of me for that reason. Um but yeah, like what he did, especially in this stage, I think has added so much to comedy. Yeah, by the way, um, you know, Animal House, he did not direct, right? I mean, that was just something that he wrote, right? Yeah. Which, so I, I think there's something interesting about that too, because I feel like yeah. there's a Landis energy in... Maybe the meanness comes from Landis. I'll yeah, just blame I, him. Why not? Why not? Yeah. You can blame him for a lot. But I do think that there is a, there is, I think that that's actually a, a fair thing because there's a, there's a, there's a bigness in Animal House, especially I'm thinking about the third act that his movies don't really have. Like the, like Harold Ramis movies, I, I think they are a little bit more grounded. And, and like, look, I think that that movie there, you know, I don't know, it, like they're, they're all over the place. You can make a lot of different uh, arguments about stuff, but I think that he was always trying to um, kind of get at the root of something. And I feel like in, in many ways, like Harold Ramis had more John Hughes vibes than uh, an anarchist vibe. Like, I think he came up in that group, but he also like a guy who did drugs, but he was the guy who did drugs and was more like the John Lennon. Like, Oh, what now I'm in this mode. You know, that at least that's how I saw him a little bit. Yeah. Um, that he was the guy who didn't necessarily want to be the center of the, it, I don't center's not fair. Um, you know, I'm trying to think about that story where like he stepped down from second city and they replaced him with John Belushi and that kind of swap. A person who's like, I don't need to be the guy like spitting water on the audience. Like I have something right. else I want to contribute and figuring out what exactly his place was. Yeah. I mean, I, so it, it it is interesting that this is this is a movie that he's talking about that he wants to make. Uh, you know, obviously it's not his idea. It's written by this guy, um, Danny Rubin. And when this movie comes out, everyone's like, everyone is suing. This is my idea. Every sci-fi author and Danny Rubin says, you know, actually, I got this idea from this old like story, which I realized I saw this old story because it's a part of a like a Mickey Mouse uh, Christmas Carol like compilation thing. Do you know, have you heard about this at all? Oh, my um, gosh. No, but I know that Mickey Mouse co- uh, Christmas Carol so well. What's the story? Maybe OK, so there's it. a couple Mickey Mouse Christmas Carols and there's one where there's like four different um, versions of like there's four like Christmas stories in it. And there's one. Huey, Dewey, and Louie, um, they want it to be Christmas every day. And then they, and then it is Christmas every day. And they're like on this loop and they learn how to appreciate Christmas. And I was like, I, I remember watching it with my kids like a year ago and I'm going, this is like a really clever idea. I love that. Cause like Christmas is this day where you're like, I want to do this. I'm going to open my present. I'm going to do this. And you're just running around. And I was like, that's a great idea. And it actually, that was based on this short story by William Dean Howells called Christmas every day, uh, that it came out in 1892. Um, yeah. So that was, that's what they're just giving you an orange every day. Congratulations. Have another (laughs) orange. But this is, so basically he's using this short story from 1892 as his impetus for Groundhog Day. And that's so interesting. I heard he was inspired by Anne Rice. Oh, interesting. Yeah. That Anne Rice that he had, I think he'd been reading the vampire Lestat. You, okay. and, um, what, Interview with the Vampire comes out this year, the year before. It comes out right around here. I, I, it's like 92, 93, 94. And that he was thinking a lot about immortality and what he would want to do with immortality. 
which oh, I've wow. always thought I would love to be immortal. Like my boyfriend's always trying to talk me out of it. He's like, when the world explodes and we're living in hot magma, do you want to be stuck living in hot magma? To which would suck, but like, I don't know, maybe it would be worth it. But- well, I mean, it, it comes to this thing. Would you, would you take this time, the reliving of a day over and over again? And, and let's, let's break it down and say like, in this movie, according to a lot of the, the very nerdy websites, uh, they have re- like Harold Ramis on a commentary track one time said he's in there for about 10 years. But according to Wolf Nards, the website, they uh, said he spent yeah, I eight really years. Yeah, I really want to know the Wolf Nards report. <laughs> they said he spent eight years, eight months and 16 days trapped in there. Then uh, a website called The Movie Truth calculated that he spent 4,576 days in there, which is 12 years, six months and 11 days. And then Obsessed with Film, another website, claims that he was trapped 12,403 days. So that's just under 34 years. And that would be in order to account for being a master piano player, an ice sculptor, etc. And we missed, there's a deleted scene where he's a pool hustler as well. Um, So, I mean, we're basically talking about 10 or 12 years seems to be like where Harold and most of these sites have put it. No, but let then, me get this correct. Yeah. Th- this extrapolation seems to be coming from something like Malcolm Gladwell, right? And his like the 10,000 hours of expertise. Sure. Like you mm-hmm. need 10,000 hours to be that good at piano. Yeah. I mean, is he really that good at piano? I mean, let's, let's listen to his piano. Can I say like one tiny quibble with this movie? Yeah. Just it's it's only a quibble of the era, which is the music is kind of lame, right? Oh, like what Amy, was happening in the nineties when we were like, man, the coolest jazz in town. It's like you're seeing the SNL band just going at it. It's so fun. I mean, the I, yeah. music choices are ridiculous. I'm gonna play a couple more because I'm like okay. on this. Okay, are you gonna play the opening theme? Which I oh hate? I am. Okay, oh, great. let's play it. I was like, this is the opening theme. The oh, Wonder Man it, song. It, it's like why? Why do we even need this? It's like I was so angry when I heard that last night. Yeah. A steady low You're feeling just the same But seasons come And seasons go I'll make you smile again if for people who are like afraid of getting too much into sentimentality or like trying to keep this tone in check, that song, you're going to pick that song. Oh, and, and not even now that we're OK, I'm on fire now. Can we talk about the action music when he takes the groundhog and tries Oof. to like run it off the road? Let's listen to that one. I mean, this is your action mu- music in a 1993 movie. <sighs> I mean, okay, this is like the kind of movie when you go to like a coffee shop that wants you to get the espresso beans that are made in Bolivia. Like, this is not what you take when you murder a groundhog. I don't understand this music. All right, here's what I'm going to, here's what I'm going to say. And it pains me to say it. I almost feel, hmm, how do I want to say this in the right way? 
I think that Harold Ramis is a great director for actors. I think he needs a better cinematographer to shoot action. I feel there there are a couple things in Harold Ramis movies that are not as clean as you would like. And there's moments where there's something that's shot so well that you're like, oh, right. Like when the camera goes into the clock and you're seeing those those numbers. I mean, by the way, that's a great uh, set design choice. If it's a clock like that, the, the flip clocks. Um, and I feel like there's something very flat about this movie on certain, like directorially, like visually, there's something a little bit more flat about it. And so when you do a shot like of the clock, that's so big and it feels so large. Um, it, it, uh, it's almost shocking. And I feel like there, there's a couple moments throughout this movie. Where I'm like, Oh, they're, they're missing out. Like the chase scene, even when he, they go up against the train and stuff, it, it could just be amped up a little bit. I don't know if it, it's yeah, a you're just sort of watching yeah. it from above and it looks a little bit just goofy and pathetic. Like, why are we doing this but with the yeah. train with it running on the train? And I think I think that you see elements of that in like early Judd Apatow things. I think it's like, well, the focus is the comedy, the performances, yeah, and the story. The writing, and I, like we don't r- want to razzle dazzle you. And I and I agree with that because I think that sometimes you get like a better performance because you're not worried about like doing it in a specific way. You're get you're opening for improv. You're opening for yeah. You just open for moments. So that, so it's, and I, I can make my piece about it when we're talking about right. like the train scene because. You don't want to make the train look cool. It's not like necessarily cool what he's doing. Like he's no. trying, he's going to maybe get other people killed. Like it's not that cool. So if you make it look like, woo, it's the Fast and Furious. You, yeah. It, it does. I, th- I think it's okay to make it look a little pathetic. But I do wonder why we agreed so early on that it was okay if comedies didn't have to be that interestingly shot. You know, I, yeah. I, I associate this entire genre with like lukewarm shooting, which it doesn't have to be that way. You know, sometimes you get stuff like, I'm just going to say tag or like game night that are actually yeah. directed with the really same well. intensity that other movies are visually. And it's nice. I don't know why that feels like such a small part of the genre. Pop star well, never I mean, stop, never stopping. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I'll talk about like, just to keep it in the couple world because those movies are a little bit more stylized and genre wise. Like let's talk about long shot, long shot directed by Jonathan Levine, who I think is a great director. Uh, and again, another movie that I have a very small part in, but the, uh, but can be directed beautifully. That movie, I think, is a great romantic f- comedy, uh, but also it looks great. And I think you can do, you can kind of find these things, and there can be like big slapsticky moments. Like there is a moment, like in Longshot, where like Seth falls down a flight of stairs, you know, and you can still do all that sort of stuff, but it just, and I don't know, maybe it's a different time where the budget was or whatever it was. Anyway, I just wanted to call that out because I was like, there are like one or two shots in here that are really good that almost made me go, like, oh, why, where was that direction here? It's the lighting is a little bit flat it just like you know um but that being said it's uh, you know it doesn't really dissuade it just no. it, worth mentioning but maybe it's just that like this whole clique of guys i mean we're talking about guys who seem to all kind of know each other you know they mm-hmm. all seem to have like hung out in chicago and they all came from more like stage and radio and writing before they held a camera so maybe it was just that the camera was never their first love you know the storytelling was and then right. because they made such good films anyway Every other director who did comedy was like, oh, I can just do that, too. It's like they almost set a template that didn't need to be set. Yeah, I mean, I think you can look at like something even like Fast Times, too. Like, I think that comedy just had a certain budget. It got a certain caliber of a DP. It got a certain, you know, like there was a certain it's almost like you go to the store and you get your comedy budget and which allows you to get a certain range of people. And now I think people are playing with that. But I want to go back to the question I I was kind of leading to, which is like you wanted to be immortal. But would you would you do this Uh, as somebody who wants to do all these things and do the crossword in 20 minutes and do all this sort of stuff? Would you 
let's say like because obviously 34 years seems a lot would you let let's split it and say would you do 12 years would you do 12 years of the same day over and over again does that seem good to you does it seem bad to you what would you do would you do 12 years of the same day i think so if it wasn't like a painful day yeah like because the day that he's reliving in Groundhog Day, you know, you get some free coffee downstairs. Like, it's not like you're in Edge of Tomorrow where you're waking up every day and like dying. So that's nice. Like, it's not like you're waking right. up to be like brutally, painfully tortured. Like, that's a whole level of repeating the same day. But let me ask you this do. question. Well, no hot water. That's where I was going to go. Okay, Because great. they kind of drop that. Like, he has two cold mm-hmm. showers and then they never bring it up again. And, and he she has to says, take a cold shower every day. Every day for 12 years. Now, my thought process was <laughs> okay, at a certain point, he'll figure out how to get to that hotel and take a hot shower. And he could always just like, he could always just go to that hotel and take a hot shower. I feel like that he might have done that. The fact that, you know, he. Uh, but, but I also thought it would have been more damning if she said, oh no, the town doesn't have any hot water, but yeah, she's like, oh no, not today. She says, oh no, not today. <laughs> but yeah. I, that, that cold water really made me go, this is a harder existence. I think I would too, you know, and I think that we all look to be kind of, but think about it. Like, just think about doing it for 10 days, like 10 days would be like, would it be interminable? Like, you know, um, I don't know. It's a, it's a tricky thing because you can do anything you want. You can eat what you want. You don't have to exercise. You don't have to do, you know, there's no consequences. You don't have to call anybody. Like there's all I'd these things. I'd love to go can... to that diner and eat all of that cake. Oh, really, yeah. I mean, all of those fries, really. Oh, I'd love it. I mean, you would want all that sort of stuff. So I guess my thought is that like. That diner has a lot of dessert for a diner too. It's well, not just like a couple slices of pie. They have like donuts. Well, they're it's really Groundhog like, Day. They're, they're bringing out the, the you know, this is a big day in town. They have to bring out everything. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. There, there's something that is, you want to do it. Like, I don't want to live through what you said, like Tom Cruise, uh, in that movie. I don't want to live through Jim Carrey not being able to tell. I don't want to live through, um, Eddie Murphy not being able to speak, but this movie does have an element to it where it is a little vicarious. Like, oh, wouldn't it be neat to be able to focus on piano every day? Wouldn't it be neat to, you know, like there is a, there is something, I think Palm Springs even has a little bit more of like, I'm trapped to it, mm-hmm. but like, I'm content you hang, I, you hang on it a little bit. I, I, I think you do. I, I think there's an element where we want to be him. I mean, kind of, yeah. Kind of, Cause right? it doesn't, I mean, everybody is telling him from the beginning, it's not that bad of a day, you know, like right. he's grumbling and he like, can't wait to leave, but it's really fine. And I mean, I hate continuing to talk about like the quarantine period, but I, you know, if you had told me a year ago that I would be inside for a year and I wouldn't have to drive to screenings and eat popcorn and it'd be like, what would you do with all that time? I'd be like, I'd fill it with so many things. And honestly, I kind of haven't. And so, right. I, yeah, I guess you'd need 12 years to figure out you want to learn piano because I have not learned piano. Right. We're I mean, not even early, a year yeah. in. We're not even a year yeah. into our quarantine. And and I know a lot of people say it feels like Groundhog. I've heard that thing said a lot. Like, it yeah. feels like Groundhog. But uh, have we done all those things that we want to do? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, early, early, I think about this, like early pandemic, um, my friend Larry, um, mm-hmm. who's a great screenwriter, who actually um, wrote like Ed Wood, yeah. he taught himself nunchucks, like okay. month one, he like learned how to do nunchucks. And I remember being like in awe, like, whoa, by the time we're all out in a month or two, like I could learn nunchucks and I still haven't learned nunchucks. I actually have nunchucks. I've actually had nunchucks for years, never learned them. I actually <laughs> have like a bottle... Um, 
you know, when I was really into like uh, researching Tom Cruise, I bought like a cocktail bottle that you can like flip like a practice cocktail right, yeah. um, flare bartending bottle. I was like, I learned that during quarantine. Haven't really touched it. Touched it once because we watched cocktail that night. Like, I mean, it, I, I think it would take you a long time to even learn to do things, which is why I appreciate that we get to see him go through stages. You know, that his first stage is like this decadent stage. Like, I'm just going to do all the things that are bad for me before he decides to even bother trying to do anything good. I want to give you one fun, fast Groundhog fact. Groundhog Day fact, I should say. So the winning bid for Phil Connors in the auction is $339.88, an amount to this day that seems arbitrary, but there is an interesting coincidence. If the decimal is dropped, that is 33,988 days, that works out to precisely 93 years, 43 days, minus a minute from January 1st, 1900, not counting leap days, that is 93 years and 43 days ends on February 12th, 1993, a.k.a. the day that Groundhog Day was released in what? theaters. What? It's a crazy, like a weird, I mean, I'm sure it doesn't mean anything, but it's at least worthy of uh, mentioning. Who even decided to calculate that? Who is this crazy the, person? Maybe it's Wolfnards. They already did the... Oh, uh, Wolfnards, I'm sorry then. I, I, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. You know, the movie kind of ex- shows him experiencing the five stages of grief, right? Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance, right? And so if you think about it in the 12-year time zone, that's basically roughly about a year and a half, you know, a year and some change per thing. So it's a year of denial. It's a year of anger. It's a year of bargaining. And we're only seeing, I think, in the film, I, I think the uh, 38 days we see in the film. You know, there's some deleted scenes too, but we only see about whether it's a fraction of a scene or a big scene. So we see 38 days yeah. in 12 years. A couple years. quick montages where you're sure he's not getting out of bed that day because he's right. depressed. Breaks and, the alarm and, clock. Right. And so like that that idea of like a year of denial, a year of anger, a year of bargaining, like is, then when you think about that is really interesting, right? You know, because um, how would we all fare in that? And And I think, this movie does a great job at like, you know, I think it's, it is always a little bit tricky. I think even in Palm Springs, like Andy Samberg, they're trying to figure out how many, how much it's been and how long it's been. Um, but you know, it's, there's this, this element too of like, I remember reading this article about Stanley Kubrick and Kubrick was like, well, why do you do so many takes? And he's like, I do so many takes to stop actors from acting. Like the, if they, if they're doing like take 75, they're not thinking about the choices they make. They're just kind of doing it naturally. And I feel like is that what this movie is also about? Like we live our life in a way that we think we're supposed to. And once we rip away all the artifice of like what we're, what we're supposed to do, we actually start to live our life. Like, so it's almost like 
it's like he is grieving his life to then be reborn into what he would do if he could do it right like we like you want to learn nunchucks but you have responsibilities i want to do certain things but i have responsibilities but if you had no those responsibilities how long would it take you to get to be the person that you really truly want to be right and and do it because you want to do it not because you know he's not bartering there's not like an there's not a devil on the other side of this going like hey if you do this you'll do that you know so it's interesting to think about that too like how how long it takes before you can actually get to the you that you want to be yeah which is why i think it's interesting that he still shows up to work and gives his little groundhog speech in the day. I mean, I'm sure there's like periods within there where he's just not, he's like, I'm going to rob a bank today. I'm yeah. not going to like go to work at all. But then he does bother still checking in, bringing coffee. I, I think perfecting his beautiful speech that he gives at the end. When Chekhov saw the long winter, he saw a winter bleak and dark and bereft of hope. Yet we know that winter is just another step in the cycle of life. But standing here, among the people of Punxsutawney and basking in the warmth of their hearths and hearts. I couldn't imagine a better fate than a long and lustrous winter. From Punxsutawney, it's Phil Connors. So long. Yeah, I love that. I love that speech. And I mean, that's kind of near the end where he's he's become more of this enlightened guy. But there's a there's a, something interesting about like this idea that he does show up to work and we see him kind of repeating certain patterns because that's what we only have. Like we, like we want that. We want like one of the things, again, not to again, bring it into quarantine, but one of the things that's been so hard is where are our, where are our patterns? Where, okay. I used to go to the coffee shop. I used to go over here. I used to go to see a movie. So like there's, even though it's a job and he doesn't have to go to a job, it it does have comfort in going of why I know I have to go. I go get my coffee in the morning. I go like, it's almost breaking free of the pattern of life. And even though at the end of the movie, he's still doing the pattern of life. It's true. And yet I was thinking today about what this movie doesn't do even within that pattern, you know, because there's a mm-hmm. lot here that is unpleasant, like the shower, like mm-hmm. meeting Ned, even though I think Ned is so tragic. Phil Connors? Phil Connors, I thought that was you. Uh, how you doing? Thanks for watching. Hey, hey. Now, don't you tell me you don't remember me because I sure as heck fire remember you. Not a chance. <laughs> Ned! Ryerson! Needle nose Ned, Ned the head. Come on, buddy. Case Western High. Ned Ryerson, I did the whistling belly button trick at the high school talent show. Bing! Ned Ryerson got the shingles real bad senior year, almost didn't graduate. Bing again. Ned Ryerson, I dated your sister Mary Pat a couple times till you told me not to anymore. Well? Ned Ryerson? Bing! Bing! I mean, all of the embarrassing things that Ned uses to introduce himself, like, Poor Ned, even though Ned's a little bit of a creep. But yet there are these unpleasant things. And there there is this way where you could recut this movie and make it seem so awful. You know, like all yeah. of these horrible things he experiences every day so that the audience makes sure we feel the weariness of the new day. And they eliminate all of that. Like you don't see the bad shower every day. Like you don't get even like a 10 second montage of like all the days of bad showers. You know, And I appreciate that, that the movie doesn't have to go a step further to make us feel bad because it wants to say everything else. But it does, but it does embrace the, the suicide montage is actually really interesting. Like it's like that, that suicide montage is they linger in it longer than I thought. And I like that. It's like, okay, he's going to kill himself by, he killed himself in the first way in a very violent way, like electrocuting himself in a bathtub. And then he jumps off of a building. Like he does some really violent 
things, you know, in, um, to his body, which is, I don't know, it struck me a little bit, um, you know, gets hit by the truck like that. Um, like he doesn't take an easy way out. He takes pretty brutal ways out. No. And he does it in ways where like the people that he also sort of will care about, like Annie McDowell are discovering his body or like the woman at the house has to spend the whole day, like getting him out of the bathtub. Like that's terrible. But I guess what I meant is like, but they won't remember it. Yeah, the small repeated things like the movie doesn't really labor on. Like I was struck by the economy of the screenwriting here to where at the end when he figures out how to have this perfect day, you know, a lot of the people that are kind of touching on him that you've we've seen him once. Like we see Michael Shannon only once or twice in this movie. Mm-hmm. And the movie doesn't make us spend more time with the things that he's doing than it has to. We can kind of just get it. You know, we get like he saves that one dude's life here and that he fills these people's like tires over there. And it doesn't belabor it. I feel like there's just it's a there's a fleetness in all of the things he does where the movie really pairs it down and just has them be done. I want to do something with you, an experiment, and then I want to drop my big bombshell on you. But um, I think you're talking about this like economy of screenwriting, and this goes back to I think where Harold Ramis is really strong, and I think he caters this movie incredibly uh, to Bill Murray's strengths. And I think that that you know one of the things that people say about why they broke up is Bill Murray was sick and tired of feeling like Harold Ramis was his savior. Like Harold Ramis always did. You know, when you look back at his career, like Harold Ramis is responsible for it. So I think there was like a, I want a break from this guy. Yeah, I think one of the lines of that somebody said about Bill Murray is that he's a man with a thimble full of gratitude. Right. Even when Groundhog Day comes out, like Bill Murray is giving interviews where he says, you know, this movie is going to open up a whole new career for me, like the romantic leading man. And it proves that with the right story and the right clothes and the good lighting, anything is possible. Like this is the movie that gives us you know, indie Murray, the Murray mm-hmm. who shows up Absolutely. later on. And like, this is has Rushmore this Murray. Weirdness. This is, yeah. Yeah. This is Lost in Translation Murray. This is Broken uh, broken Flowers Murray. This is On the Rocks Murray that just came out where he's, you know, it's it's a fine movie. It's cute. It's fine. But, but he, another Sophia Coppola movie. Yeah, you're right. Like he is, um, like he doesn't like, not that he doesn't look good in this movie, but he looks like, I was kind of remarking on like the way he looks. It's like there's a cuteness to him in Stripes and Ghostbusters. It's not really here. It's like he looks it looks a little bit more. He looks beaten, a little worn. He looks worn, like a guy yeah. who's going through a divorce and isn't sleeping and is calling people at 2 a.m., which is what he's doing. And you, you can kind of I mean, he wasn't even Ramus's first choice. Like he wanted to go to Hank's. But Hank's thought that he was so nice type in his own typecasting that mm-hmm. nobody would believe that the movie I was that, going to go to some dark places. Yeah. Well, the the other the only person that I saw that was on the list that I thought was a good choice for this role was Michael Keaton, and mm. Michael Keaton said no because he didn't understand it. And this is like a Michael. This is a great Michael Keaton role in it many is. respects. And I think that like Bill Murray and Michael Keaton uh, share a certain DNA uh, that you know it's like a Chicago y DNA of, but it's it's yeah. I, Bill Murray aces this movie better than I think anyone can, but my, I think you know um, Michael Keaton could have done it. Like this, Michael is, Keaton I could see it. that one swap being made, and this movie's still working. I, I mean, by the Ruben way, Ruben wanted like Kevin Klein because yeah. he thought Bill Murray wasn't a good enough actor, but that Kevin Klein was. I what think I love Kevin of, Klein might do okay, but maybe it's just the roles I've seen him in outside. I, no. I think he'd be like a little slick. I think he looks I think, a lot like a weatherman. There's a sadness to Bill Murray's carriage that Kevin Klein doesn't necessarily. There, yeah, have. Kevin Klein could definitely play that dick character and i think you could i could see you could see him doing it i think you could see him doing it but i love that harold ramus knows like what he, i think if, one of the reasons why this movie works so well is because harold knows how to write for bill murray all right so i want to do an experiment with you here i want to read a scene with you um and we're going to read uh the original script and the harold ramus rewrite um so here we go we're going to start off on uh, the uh 
Oh my God, is left- this an episode of Screen Test? I have to do scenes with Paul. I know you have to. Well, I'm not going to try to do, um, I'm not going to try to act that, <laughs> but I, I want you to kind of hear it. I figured I could read it, but I thought it would be better with you. Can you see it right here? So yeah. we'll read uh, Ruben's original script. This is a scene in the diner. So at this point, the script has some voiceover and I'll be Bill Murray and you'll be Andy McDowell. I don't mean to typecast you. Um, uh, uh, so to be like, typecast as Andy McDowell would be the greatest compliment on <laughs> So uh, here we go. Uh, the voiceover of Phil is, and me and Rita together were the most obvious thing in the world. And then I say, have you ever felt like you were reliving the same day over again? Like deja vu? More like deja, deja, deja. So you still think you've been here before? Phil nods. And how does this evening turn out? I'll tell you what I do know, even in a day as long as this, even in a lifetime of endless repetition, there's still room for possibilities. Well, like sexy, like that kind of that look. Now, that's the original version of the script. Here is the rewrite. What are you looking for in the perfect guy? Well, first of all, he's too humble to know he's perfect. That's me. He's intelligent, supportive, funny. Intelligent, supportive, funny, me, me, me. He's romantic. Courageous. Me, me also. He has a good body, but he does not have to look at it in the mirror every two minutes. I have a great body and I never look at it. He's kind and gentle and sensitive and considerate, and he's not afraid to cry in front of me. This is a man we're talking about, right? What are you looking for? Who is your perfect guy? Well, first of all, he's too humble to know he's perfect. That's me. He's intelligent, supportive, funny. Intelligent, supportive, funny. Me, me, me. He's romantic and courageous. Me also. He's got a good body, but he doesn't have to look in the mirror every two minutes. I have a great body, and sometimes I go months without looking. Uh, He's kind, sensitive, and gentle. He's not afraid to cry in front of me. This is a man we're talking about, right? There's such a difference there in those scenes, right? I mean, like you see, like, I mean, those are two different movies, right? Like one is, I don't know, there's so much more fun and playfulness in this relationship. Like I want to see that character get together than the other side. I also feel like I understand Andy McDowell a little bit more. I don't know. When I saw those two scenes side to side, I was like, wow, what a, what a difference, you know? Yeah, one is talking about generic big ideas and one is talking about concrete things. You know, yeah. one is like possibilities are endless and one is like, here's what I'd like to do. And it's more of a, a, a dare. Can you do this? It's more concrete. So let me ask you this, because this is my big thought on this watch. I know this is a part of couples goals. And I know that Harold Ramis, you know, his whole thought was that love conquers all. That was his like, that, or like, you know, that love can be transformative. But I don't know if I, I don't know if I buy the love story. Now, that's not to say that I love... <gasps> How very you? well i guess i guess what i'm saying is this i love the way it plays out i don't understand why this woman becomes his focus because i don't think that the beginning of the film and that first act were setting up anything that makes them feel like they are connected like you know it's not like like there's a million, they're not a million, but there's a, there's a dozens of women in this town that he could try to impress. And in a weird way, which he does, he which he does. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And me, you know, or, but does he, 
does he do that like um just to have sex right like like i mean like when he when he has you know with nancy like that's not like a real relationship but like when he's but when he's kissing nancy he calls her rita and i'm like what why is he like why is he obsessed with rita like i just feel like they did set up they didn't give me a good enough setup besides the fact that she's the only woman in his life so that's who he's like focusing on and i think that that was the thing that i really like got hung up on this i'm like why rita like why he just met her he has no relationship with her by the time that groundhog day reboots there's been no connection and why is she any bit better than anyone in town like if she was somebody in the town i'd almost find it to be even a little bit more engaging on some level Uh, but like like what is it about this woman that he? I don't know. Does that make sense? Am I totally out of bounds here? Like well, I just don't get. I it. think you're wrong, but you're talking like day one, Bill Murray. You know, I mean, okay. when he first sees Rita, she's like wearing that kind of baggy shirt and baggy yeah. pants, and he's just like, that is not my kind of fun. You know, that's right. not who he would pick out either. Like he would pick out Nancy. You know, kind of okay. like gorgeous, flirty, like um, ready for anything. I, I think what happens with him and Rita is that. Rita is the one person in this town who won't buy his bullshit, mm-hmm. you know, that there is something in her that really represents what he's still lacking, like that she is this like figure of sincerity and joy and that she thinks being at that at in this town is actually fun. And But she's not like a simple, cheerful idiot. You know, she's she's on to him and she can hear things in his voice and she's incredibly smart and intelligent i think about the scene where he's trying to seduce her and he's like giving the full court press and you can tell even from the way he's talking that he's like done this step a million times he's got the ice cream on the windowsill he's ready and yet she is a woman who i think is so clued into what is honest in this world she can just tell she can tell when he crosses a line no really phil i'm tired we can see each other tomorrow no tonight it's gonna be tomorrow. No, Phil, really. <laughs> Come on, just stay for a while, and then if you like it, stay for a while longer. And if you like it, stay for a while longer. Let's not spoil it, okay? Not spoiling it. I don't want to spoil it either. You know, I can't. I can't stay with you. Why not? I love you. You love me. I love you. You don't even know me. Oh, I, I know you. Oh, no. I can't believe I fell for this. This whole day has just been one long setup. No, it hasn't. And I hate fudge. Yuck. No white chocolate, no fudge. What are you doing? Are you making some kind of list or something? No. Did you call up my friends and ask them what I like and what I don't like? No. Is, Is this what love is for you? No, this is real. This is love. Stop saying that. You must be crazy. I could never love someone like you, Phil, because you'll never love anyone but yourself. That's not true. I don't even like myself. Give me another chance. That's for making me care about you. That's it. I think that is it, because that comes after the perfect guy conversation, where, like, maybe at the beginning he's just frustrated he can't make it work, and he's it's like a challenge, like I've got to make it work. But then he grows to really know her and love her. I think it is a slow process. It takes him a while. You know, I think about the stages in their relationships where he really realizes what a good person she is. He could have lived his whole life and never known she was a good person. It's definitely not love at first sight. You're exactly right about that. But then that you, even in the midpoint, before he even figures it out, 
he talks to her while she's asleep. You know, they have that night where she Love believes that. Yeah. him that everything is going it like crazy. what year is that you think? You think that's like Gosh. year seven or eight? Like I mean, yeah. like we're putting it like, I, and I guess maybe that's what I'm missing. I think because I because I think their chemistry is really good. I think that their relationship is good. I just didn't. I think that that bridge is what I was missing. Like why yeah. all of a sudden this person that you don't like you go to like I almost would buy one more scene in this movie where he goes to like Chris Elliott's character first because they have actually had a history together. Like you know like. Like he immediately goes to her, but yet she has not yet done anything, I think, in the film to be like, oh, I need to trust her. And, you know, yeah. except for I the mean, fact that she gives wants, him the key. Oh, the trusting part. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think he just wants to nail her. And then I think he learns. But that her. moment of desperation when he goes to her yeah. like the first time is like, I'm not going to shoot this. Come yeah. meet me in the diner. And she's like, like, why are you too sick? And he's like, I've been living this over and over again. Yeah. Like, and she's like, okay. Like, but his, that's early on. And I feel like he's saying to her, like, I can trust you. You can help me. But I, did, I didn't get that relationship. And I almost feel like because she was, and this is, I think, maybe a problem in the script because originally the script was written without that top half there. And then Harold Ramis wrote it because basically the studio exec was like, just try to write like the opening and, and see how it feels. And then they like, they did and they liked it. Um, if she was his producer for a long time, and that he never really saw her. And then he does get to see her, but he respects her. Like, there was a little lack of history there that made, I was in this beginning moment. I was like, why, why? Like, why is this where he's driving? Um, I just didn't feel that there's enough track there. But I think if you not if you disregard that, it all plays out fine. I just was, that was the thing I was wrestling with. It's not like, why does he like her? It was yeah. sort of like, why are you, why does she become a focal point? And probably it's because it's a movie and you need a focal point and that's all it is. But, uh, but I just, I, I, I did, I didn't get that, that initial why she was the person, maybe because he did think he was crazy and she, he was treating her like a producer. I don't know. Yeah. That's kind of what I thought is like, she's the person who's holding the cards in that situation anyways. Like Chris Elliott, if he convinces him that he is having a bad day, repeating the day over and over again. Chris Elliott's just the cameraman. Like, what's he going to do about it? Right. But her as the producer, she at least makes the call whether or not they're driving back or going to get even bother getting stuck in the snow. You know, like, he doesn't want to get stuck in the snow. Like, right. she's more in charge. I think and, yeah, he maybe, trusts her. I think he trusts her as a producer. So maybe what we're saying is, and maybe this is where I've misinterpreted the film, is like, he's going to her first as a producer, and then she's just one of the girls that he wants to have sex with. It's like, it, it, yeah. it's not a real relationship. And because of him trying to perfect it, and one of my favorite scenes of the whole movie is when he's speeding through the date, like, oh gosh, look at the kids, the snowman. Yeah, like, yeah. You know, the Can't wait to have a bunch of kids. Oh, I'm going to have uh, so many kids. Yeah. It's, and it, it's and he so sounds funny. so harried and frenzy and phony, and she won't buy it. And I love that about her. Well, because he's done it like a million times, and he's like, he's basically just doing the same day over and over and over, and he's like yeah. just hitting, he's like racing through the beats. It's so funny. Um, and I but, think like comparing that, like the, the snowball fight that he's clearly doing for her, and it's practiced, mm -hmm. With that speech he gives her while she's asleep, you know, a speech that isn't for her. It's not for her right. benefit at all. It's for him. And what he says in there, like that over this, he's really come to know her. Like he has known her through, through trying to game and manipulate her. He's gotten to really love her for who she right. is and see all of her facets. And she That's made him a better man. Right? She, yeah. she kind of ignites the passion of exploring different things. And in so almost like 
it's almost like a Miyagi Danielson relationship where he's like, you know, wax the floor and then like, oh, now I had to do, now I know how to do karate. She's like, you know, to to read French poetry, to learn French, he is like he's actually bettering himself in an attempt nowhere. And then he actually then at a certain point when that when that um, basically like the yes, no relationship fails where it's like you don't like fudge you don't like white chocolate okay ga, ga, ga. like when that fails he actually Who doesn't then, like fudge and white chocolate i love i mean both she's of very them. particular uh she doesn't even eat, eat those desserts um but then she that turn that break like whatever that is maybe there's like a two or three year break there and then he kind of reapproaches her and i think so maybe that's when i'm right like now he, as i'm yeah he becomes a better man to want to make it work. Maybe that's also why you want to move up the guy he tries to save. Yes, I think you're right. And yeah. I, think, I think what I'm realizing here is... When he's a better man, he knows that that's the man he sh- the girl he should be with. This is the Harry Met Sally kind of uh, like relationship in a way, in the sense that like we're seeing him at different stages of his life. And so here's a woman that he tried like, okay, he didn't like her at first. And then he's like using her as like an ally. And then he's just trying to sleep with her. And now he's like trying to actually realize like oh i actually am falling in love with like so that, i see that oh, a little yeah, bit they better do now. map on each other uh, yeah that makes me i mean do you think billy crystal could have done this uh, he'd be too cute he'd be like too, um, oh you gotta love me yeah you're gonna crystal, love my know. buttons my sticky I th- buttons. yeah I, you know what look to so the 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 cast list, which we i know we talked about a little bit i mean uh, chevy chase was another one um no, he never no, chevy he, chase is never gonna have an emotional bone in his body no um steve martin was another one. And interesting because Steve Martin played the weatherman in L.A. story like we talked about. But Steve Martin, I also think, is a little bit too sincere. John Travolta was another actor. Um, but uh, but but then you get into the Travolta-ness. Every girl's at that period of his life. Every girl might want to sleep with him a little easier. That's like phenomenon Travolta, yeah. which is like a well, weird. Yeah, no. Uh, Wait, like is that, Steve, that's not ponytail Travolta, though. No, Steve yeah. Martin I could buy. But Steve Martin, even in his like assholeness. It has an element a, a flavor that's a little bit he reads little, spiritual on the page. yeah i yeah. i think you're right um anyway all right so that was all right so you've actually made me appreciate it a little bit more because i was like i do like the relationship i just felt like uh that um i didn't buy the the introduction but i guess i'm looking at over 12 years i do well you're still gonna have to listen to that speech though because i love it okay what i wanted to say was I think you're the kindest, sweetest, prettiest person I've ever met in my life. I've never seen anyone that's nicer to people than you are. And the first time I saw you, Something happened to me. I never told you, but I knew that I wanted to hold you as hard as I could. Mm-hmm. I don't deserve someone like you. However, I do want to say this, like, I mean, what do you think happens to them now? Now that he can't game a day, like, does, does this, well, he's not gaming a day. 
Yeah. He's, he's become a whole different person. Like, I feel like, yeah. the, the, you know, if we're talking about like, like but he's a, not going to be like saving everybody's life. Like never again in their relationship will he, will somebody be like, you saved my life today. Like that won't happen. But his next day will be approached in the same way. He wants to live in the town. Like, yeah. you know, he's like, let's, re- like, let's stay here. Let's stay here forever. Like, you know. Uh, and then like, he's like, let's rent. Right. Yeah. But I mean, but there, like, I think that like it's less about like him being, I, I also think that that's transparent for her. Like, she's like just in love with him just because he's a good guy around. Like, I think that she's seeing that some total of everything and she's not seeing him save everybody. Like she's seeing a lot of the after effects that he knows everybody in the town and that he's, I think it, I think the relationship lasts because I think he's changed. Um, and by the way, talking about this last scene, you know, where, where he does wake up and this is kind of a cool thing with Harold Ramis. And I think this movie feels like this has a lot, like they didn't know how to play that last scene. I didn't know what it was going to be. I remember him talking to me about this too. Like he's like, we, they shot it in so many different ways. Um, and, uh, and I read a little bit more about that because he talked about it very publicly as well. Like they shot it 25 different times and, um, and they basically took a vote with the crew. Like, how do we play it? Do we play it like this? Do we play it like they've had sex? Do we play it like they don't have sex? They, and the crew really like weighed in on how they should play that scene. And the idea was they didn't have sex, that they, you know, that they wake up in their clothes and, and that was, they were just trying to figure out what the tone needed to be for that last uh, scene. And I love that also Harold Ramis is that open to be like, what, yeah, what is working? What do you all want to see? Yeah. And that last scene does play so well. I mean, it plays so, so well. It does. It, it, can you imagine that in the first draft of the script, script that Ruben, who I think is a much more cynical guy, maybe intellectual, cerebral, cynical type than anybody making this film, he wanted it to end with finally Murray is out of the loop, but she's in the loop. And yes. so now we're like in her loop and she's still stuck in that day, which is such a depressing ending, honestly. Well, by, by the way, I mean, made me think about Palm Springs. I'm like, did someone read an article about this movie and go like, oh, I'll just take these kind of discarded ideas and kind of toss them in? Because, you know, one of the fun things about Palm Springs is like that she's in his loop and then he gets then, you know, there's a, there's this energy there that was interesting. Like if she was in his loop of every day as Groundhog Day, it would be like a very back to the future two moment. Mm-hmm. Your kids, they're assholes. You know, it's a very, you know, uh, it, you know, and it's like, wah, wah, like, well, what does that become? But, but does she need to, does she need to get better? I don't know if she does. And, you know, um, but that would be, yeah, that would be kind yeah. of a crazy thing. I mean, it is clear that like all of the people involved with this have now re-entered the loop. It feels like this movie came out. They said that year, there's not going to be a sequel, not going to be a sequel. Maybe that was part of like the Ramus Murray tension that they knew mm-hmm. there was never going to be a sequel. Um, but it was pretty clear. I mean, and through their whole strained relationship, like Ramus and Murray were only communicating through Murray's brother, you know, and Murray's wow. brother would just who's say, in the movie. Yeah. Who would, would just say like, no, to things so you just pass on things and not respond to things. And- oh, when you watch some of the behind the scenes footage, like you'll see it in the featurettes, like Bill Murray is fucking writing Harold Ramis. Like, mm-hmm. he's like, what are you, Harold, a stylist or a director? Like, you're like, whoa. And, Oof. and. It's like, it's, uh, yeah, there's some tense moments. You're like, you're like, oof, oof. Yeah. I didn't yeah. realize they were communicating through notes. Um, yeah. So the, yeah, they were commu- it's like middle school communicating through an intermarried. It's, will he be in, what was the movie? I think it was, um, I think it was the ice harvest. He was like asking Bill Murray's brother, like, will he please be in the ice harvest? I'd really love to see him. Can he please check this box? Yes. No, maybe. Will he oh. be in the ice harvest? And the brother was like, no. He came back with a no. And he's like, well, did he ask about me? And he was like, no. It's so sad. Crazy. And so then for them to finally reconcile, I mean, it's really touching. Like, I mean, Ramus dies um, 
early in 2014. And just a couple weeks after he dies, Bill Murray is um, announcing one of the categories at the Oscars. This is 2014 Oscars. He's announcing Best Cinematography. And for a guy who wouldn't talk to Ramis, you know, for two decades, like you, I think he took this moment to make, it's kind of a strange apology, but I'll take it. Well, it's interesting because I want, before you play this, I want to say like he did a first step, which was he released a statement when Harold died. And, and the statement is Harold Ramis and I together did National Lampoon Show, Off-Broadway, Meatballs, Stripes, Caddyshack, Ghostbusters, and Groundhog Day. He earned his keep on this planet. God bless him. That was it. And I remember being like a fan of both of these guys, huge. And I was like, oh, that's a really like, hmm, like a a bummer quote. Like it was mm-hmm. Bill Murray-esque, but it was a bummer. And, uh, and I was like, ah, damn. And then. And then he's at the Oscars and he's announcing the category for best cinematography. And this is what he does. All right, you're the brains of the operation too, baby. Tell them, tell them who's up for best shooter. Here are the nominees for achievement in cinematography. The Grandmaster, Philippe Lesseur, Gravity, Emmanuel Lubezki, Inside Lewin Davis, Bruno Delbanel, Nebraska, Faden Michael, Prisoners, Roger A. Deakins. Oh, we forgot one. Harold Ramis for Caddyshack, Ghostbusters, and Groundhog Day. It's a nice moment there, and especially after I rag, uh, ragged on their cinematography in this I movie. I know, I was just thinking uh, that. Oh, of all the categories. Uh, uh, and, you know, I mean, Bill, Bill Murray is still alive, of course. Thank God. We're glad he is. Yeah. And I think, you know, since... Since I do think he comes across a little bit more like the villain in this, I want to extend to him the benediction that Ramus extended to him, even when they were still speaking. You know, he said that Bill is the kind of guy who would give you his kidney if you needed it, but he wouldn't return your phone calls. Yeah, you know what? And, and I, I buy that. And I, I know that. And again, I'm probably mixing some personal stuff and like some uh, written stuff. But I think his daughter really covered a lot of this song. I, I feel comfortable saying it. Um, like he came to his house completely unannounced with like pastries or something like some donuts and just sat on his bed when he was very, very sick. And Harold had this terribly debilitating disease. Uh, And, uh, and they were able to connect. And I feel like maybe in in a very Bill Murray way, because you can see in that clip, you can't, you can't hear it maybe, but you can see like he's emotional talking about it. Uh, they they did their things behind the private you know the closed mm-hmm. door right and i feel like and and look time has changed and and people change and i'm glad that they actually had that and they you know whatever was said in those moments who knows but i, I feel like one of those things that i feel like so happy for harold is because like you talk about it, it's like it was something that was such a big deal to him that to have lost this this yeah. friend this this lover of comedy you know this partner and and if we didn't lose that what could we have gotten you know, yeah. I was thinking about that, like what would have been the other films and and stuff like that. And I and I, I just uh, I love all of that stuff, and I love these these two. And and I think that you know it goes back to what we were saying on a lot of these other other episodes. Like sometimes a a collaboration to the same idea with different tacks will breed a better movie. Like I don't know if Groundhog Day is as popular as the Bill Murray version. I don't know if Groundhog Day is 
good the Harold Ramis version without Bill Murray. Like so, it's like this whatever this collaboration was made it really great. And I, um, and I think that that's really special about that. And it always makes you go like, well, maybe I should collaborate more. And I think that, you know, especially in a comedy and, and you can, and you can leave things to be open and weird. Like Harold Ramis plays a role in this movie. He also plays the announcer on the radio. Mm-hmm. Bill Murray's brother plays a role in this movie and also plays the announcer on the radio. And they're not the same person. I don't think the doctor and the, the down guy are the radio person. But like there are certain things that like that are sloppy and fun and just playful. And and um, and I think that there's like an energy to this movie that like keeps it alive like that. I think it's like this idea that like it doesn't matter. It's just, we're telling a good story and we're trying to make a good story. And, and I think that that's what they did do. They told a good story at the end of the day. Yeah, I like I mean, I think collaboration really is so key i mean even ruben himself you know guy the the screenwriter who had this idea you know who picked groundhog's day as a holiday you know he wanted to come up with something he thought would be like it's a wonderful life which i think this movie feels like our modern it's a wonderful life you know yeah well even the end is a call to that thing yeah i mean it snows at the end it snows at the end of wonderful life too you know it's like how you know you're back yeah exactly you know they need each other and it makes me wonder you know putting this all into context you know if Bill Murray thinking about this movie and what it meant and like refusing to have gone back to, I mean, he never went back to his Puxatani if his Puxatani is his friendship with, with Ramis mm-hmm. and their working partnership. Like he refused to have that same day again. I wonder if that fits into him deciding to do his like one and only commercial that he said he'd ever do in his life, which is for Jeep, which was last year, yes. his Groundhog's Day commercial where he goes back. Here, let's take a listen. Okay, campers, rise and shine. It's Groundhog Day. And don't oh, forget no. your booties because it's cold oh, out no. Phil? Hey, Phil. No, not you. It's me, man, Ryerson. Okay, little fella. Good job. That's different. Good job. Hey! He's got the Groundhog! <laughs> It's not personal. It's just a game. Not a bad day, huh? I don't know where we parked. I was following you. I mean, do you sell out? Uh, selling out. That's such a 90s. For, I'm sorry. I apologize. I'm still a child of the 90s. I mean, do you do this commercial in a bit from the goodness of your heart because you regret everything that went wrong? Like, I've, I've, from the to do a commercial, I'm just confused a little bit. I was it. thinking about this last night because I was like, did he do a direct TV commercial? Because I know Sigourney Weaver has done one mm-hmm. with aliens and all these people you'd never thought would come back, do like a fucking direct TV commercial. And, and I remember Bill Murray did it. I was like, what was that commercial? I was like, I, it probably mm-hmm. is just money. Yeah. Um, but I, I like the idea that that was kind of like a chance to go back and say like, I don't, I'm not embarrassed of this movie, you know? And he by the way, to be a little embarrassed at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, and, and, you know, maybe it's like an acknowledgement, you know, to him, I, I think that by the way, also from to go back to that scene, it's a scene where that groundhog bit him so many times he had to have like anti-rabies injections because of the bites were so severe. Like, you know, that was like a crazy 
sequence. So they go back to that. <laughs> yeah. There's like a funny story behind that too, which is, you know, like the groundhog they use in, in actual Puxatawney, Philadelphia mm-hmm. is like a raised grain ho- groundhog. They've known it since it was a baby. It's a trained okay. groundhog. They pretend it's the same groundhog. They pretend it's like a hundred year old groundhog. Right. Yeah. Um, but either way, it's like a tame groundhog. But because they decided not to shoot this movie in Puxatawney, they thought it didn't really have enough amenities nearby. It was a little bit too isolated. It would be really hard to do a big shoot, shoot there that they shot it somewhere else. Um, that Apuxutani was like, well, you can't use our groundhog then. He's our groundhog. We're not going to let oh, you wow. have him. So they just had to pick a random fucking groundhog. They picked like just some random ass groundhog. I heard that they like raised a family of groundhogs. Like, oh, we'll just raise a family and this will be the ones that we oh, use. Oh, no. I mean, according oh. to at least Bill at the time, they just picked a groundhog. They're like, there's a groundhog. Catch it. And that's why it kept biting him. Oh, man. Well, did you know that also like the original whole, the whole thing of him stealing the groundhog was going to be a lot more fun it was gonna be a bigger set piece where he's gonna like break into like the, the whatever the cave or the, the wherever the groundhog is kept but they felt like it was too f- similar to caddyshack so they kind of just did that kind of very quick version of him just like ripping it out and stealing it almost oh like i didn't even the make the caddyshack connection yeah no, wait 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 i have a question for you and i actually don't know this what is the order of these three artifacts in american history the groundhog and bill murray running off the cliff and exploding Thelma and Louise and Toonces the Driving Cat from Saturday Night Live. Because I feel like they're all Whoa. around the same time. But what is the order we here? Should, we should save that for a screen test. Uh, that, is a good, <laughs> that is a good question. Um, all right. I'm, a, I'm believing that it's Toonces, Thelma and Louise, Groundhog Day. That sounds right. I know. Th- all right. Let me look here. Thelma and Louise is 1991. All right. So, so Groundhog Day is after that. Tunes feels earlier to me, but maybe I'm wrong. Um, yeah, Tunes is from the before times when I never knew what a year was. It's just something 1989. Okay. 1988, All 99. Right. So we were, hey, look you at that. Right. Not bad. I got you it right. Got it right. All right. Um, well, how about this? And how about this? Do you know what a real groundhog sounds like when it actually is speaking groundhog Oh, I was hoping Let's hear it. <laughs> you do it again? Oh boy. Uh, look, <laughs> that is amazing. Amy, I have two, uh, you know, you've played me a clip. I have two clips lined up for you that I really want to play. Um, and I think we'll do it here because I think they're really fun. All right. So we mentioned uh, the older man who dies, right? The, and there's a scene where you see him in the hospital, by the way, really funny moment in that uh, this is just whatever, just writing, but like Bill Murray is like, I want to see him. And they're like, no, sir, you can't go back there. It's a restricted area. It's like, it's a hospital. You brought this man in and he died. And he's in the regular, like, he's just in a bed. Like, we have a restricted area. Like, oh, I've never been to a hospital where you're not allowed to see the person who's died. Uh, I just thought that was like a, <laughs> you can't go back there. It's restricted. <laughs> like, I just, uh, but anyway, um, in that scene, you see the boy who fell out of the tree with a broken leg in oh. the background. And throughout the whole movie, you'll see all the characters that he kind of interacts with in the background. But did you know that that boy who broke his leg, grew up to be a reporter, a local mm. news reporter. What? And here is a clip of him uh, telling a very interesting story about a thief. The distinctive look of a burglar on a scooter. Security video from Iman Islamic Center in late October shows him prying his way in, then taking off with the donation box. So there he is. He is a local news uh, reporter uh, reporting all. Yeah, so he, he grew up in a, in a good way there. Um, you think and he and the weatherman ever crack jokes? I mean, I'm sure that you have to. <laughs> um, but you know, you you said this whole thing about there's never going to be a sequel. 
But when there ain't a sequel, there'll always be a Broadway oh, musical. Yeah. And uh, the Broadway musical actually was really interesting. I'm, I'm just going off memory here, but I believe that the lead of that broke his leg right before it opened, and then he couldn't actually perform it. It was a crazy thing. Although well-reviewed, take a listen to one of the songs from the Broadway musical. Why do all musicals sound the same? Why do they all sound exactly the same? Give me more Andrew Lloyd Webber. At least his song sounded different, man. I I will say this. If you're going to make a movie into a musical, Groundhog Day works. Like, like, I feel like premise-wise, it's easy enough to do on stage. I, I... I don't know. I mean, Ugh. look, Mean Girls the musical. We've already gone through all these. It's it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. You know the best musical it. of the year? I'm just going to say that. The best musical of the year. Did you see that TikTok that was all the people singing about the grocery store? No. I got to check that oh, out. Oh, it's just the absolute sure, greatest. One guy on TikTok is making fun of musicals. And so he's like making up a musical about being in a grocery store and getting into a fight with his wife. And then another person like decides to like add on to it. And she plays the part of the wife. And then a person adds on and they're the part of the child who's in the grocery store. And then a person adds on and they're the worker in the grocery store. And it builds all the way up to like a can of soup and the ding dong chime right, of the door. We are going to put this sprinkler. on our social media. Okay. So I need to see this too. I want, I want to see the whole thing. It's like one of my favorite quarantine achievements. Like honestly, that these people made this TikTok. It fills me with joy. No, wait. Did you know that there was a Groundhog Day video game? What? No. Uh-huh. It came out last year for PlayStation. Uh, it's called Groundhog Day, like father, like son. And the premise is that you are Bill Murray's kid and now you're stuck, but you're stuck the day before Groundhog Day for some Wait reason. A second. I don't this know. It's crazy. I yeah. gotta get this video game. Here's a little clip of their trailer. Oh, oh, what a nightmare. I guess this town will do that to you. You come for the Groundhog, you stay for the existential dread. That handsome fella is uh, me, by the way. Phil Connors Jr. I know, Jr., right? What an original name. Thanks, Dad. That's my dad for you. One of something was never enough. He was kind of a big deal in this town. Living in his shadow was uh, kind of tough. Then I found out he had a secret. He lived the same day over and over again. Groundhog Day. Sounds like fun, right? Well, it's not. See, seems like now I'm stuck in my own loop. Get ready for the ceremony. Let's do this again. Hopefully today's the day I break the cycle. But if not, there's always tomorrow. Tomorrow is today. I don't know, Phil, you're going crazy. Whoa, it's a <laughs> VR game. I need to get in on that. Um, oh, wow. Okay. Well, I'm going to check that out immediately. Groundhogdayvr.com. I well, tell me you. if you break the loop. Okay, I, I will. I will. Uh, wow, wow, wow. I'm like, I'm kind of blown away by all the levels of what I don't like about that and what I really, why I really want to play it. Um, I'm actually reading a review of it right now. Uh, but anyway, uh, what were the reviews like when this comes out? Was it, a, you know, was it universally applauded? It was universally given the, you're pretty good. 
You know, I right. think a lot of people, you know, Ebert famously did the thing where they gave it a three-star review. They're like, it's good. I had fun. It's fun. And then it grew for them over time, which I think comedy just does. I think nobody knows how good a comedy is until it, like five years go by. It's the weirdest thing. I, well, I don't know. I feel like I see this all the time with stuff like even Popstar Never Stopping. You're like, oh, it's really good. And then you love and respect it. It happened with, with Harry Met Sally too. Like, it's, I don't know why we can't tell that a comedy is good the year that it comes out. I think it's a lot about, I think it's a lot about, um, just like also like familiarity or like letting yourself like not be, I don't know. It's comedies existing in, and us finding them again, you know, whether it is something like Tommy boy, which I think has become such a go-to, like that's one of the funniest movies. Like it, uh, I think it's also like it, the part of the joy of a comedy is like showing it to other people. Like MacGruber is so funny, but it yeah. didn't, you know, it was like, and it was so well-directed and um, but yeah, it's interesting. This movie, I think gets a lot of play on TV too. And I think that that actually helps. I think it does. And so the negative review that I picked, it was kind of a weird one. I was a little disappointed in even how this review was written. It's in the Washington post. Um, it is a negative review. It categorizes itself as a negative review. It's really just like mostly plot summary with no actual commentary at all. So it's my least those, yeah. favorite kind of review. But at the end, um, the writer says, you know, the trouble is you'll feel like you've been through too many same days yourself. With its zany daily episodes, Groundhog gets stuck in a non-progressive repetition. It's also headed for the usual life lesson in which morals, Murray's moral winter must thaw. And then it, he has this line in the review. Groundhog will never be designated a national film treasure by the Library of Congress. Whoa. To which I would say... In the year 2006, the film was selected by the United States Library of Congress to be preserved in the National Film Registry for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Well, that is really interesting. Wow. Never make now, a big I, prediction like that, my critical friends. I unless love you're that. very sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you save that You save that for like a Wayne's Brothers body switch movie. You don't save that for a Bill Murray, Harold Ramis joint. Yeah, um, exactly. And that's why I think it is interesting that this film has become so beloved, which I think it deserves it. I think it really deserves it. Like, I think in, in 1993, this was a good movie. And now it is considered a, a great movie. You know, it is being pointed to as, I think, one of the best movies of the 90s. It is. It has been pointed to, even in 2014, um, The Hollywood Reporter did a poll, like kind of their own little AFI-ish list, mm -hmm. where they asked um, over 2,000 people in the entertainment industry to rank um, their best movies of all time. And Groundhog Day came in 63 which is pretty wow. high, pretty high. And I feel like we are now embracing this movie. And I think it's a really worthwhile movie to bring to this list. Yeah. I mean, you know, so I guess the question is what, you know, what we put, you know, obviously the goal of the show is to send a list of the hundred best movies to the aliens and hopefully they would understand us more and we would understand them more. Would this be a movie that you would put on that list? I really might. I mean, if you if the biggest ding against this comedy, which I think has a great love story for sure, Absolutely. is that it's it covers the same territory as It's a Wonderful Life, which is one of my top 10 favorite films of all time. You could do a lot worse. Like you could do if that's my biggest but ding against you. It's a Wonderful Life is interesting, though, because It's a Wonderful Life is a different protagonist. Right. I mean, yes, there's similarities. There's but the same thing of like, I live in this town. I'll never get out. Where do I go it, from here? But yeah, but there's a different thing in the sense of like, Bill doesn't live in that town. It's like, yeah. he's not in this small town. Like he does have bigger aspirations. And I think there's a different character at play. Like, I feel like, you know, Bill Murray is a character who would sacrifice, who would cut in front of somebody else where Jimmy Stewart is a guy who let everybody else cut in front of him. Right. That's there's true. a part of, you know, there's a part of that. I mean, I, I understand, like, I'm not debating that 
there aren't some similarities. I think there are some things that are even baked into the movie that feel like that. But I feel like they are different enough that they stand on their own two feet because I think that this movie's this movie is at its core talking about what are the patterns that we create for ourselves that keep us safe and not growing. Right. And I feel like that's a different thing than It's a Wonderful Life, which is like kind of look at all the love that you have around you that yeah. you're not acknowledging. Where here it's like you have to find who you are, like find who you truly are. Whereas I feel like Jimmy Stewart is just not acknowledging what he actually has, if that makes sense. I know it's a very small difference. of, But it's, I mean, Jimmy Stewart is like learning that he never got to live his, he's accepting that he never got to live his life the way he pictured. You know, he has a mm-hmm. picture of his life that he didn't get to have. And so it's a movie about reconciling disappointment and appreciating, appreciating the bad things that, ha- you know, bad things happened to you and it will be okay. It, yeah. I think, yeah, Bill Murray is coming from a place of everything's been pretty fine, but how can you have a deeper life going through it? I, I yeah, I, I, to me, I want to put this on the list because I think it's a movie like Harry Metzel that we talk about a lot. It's a movie that maybe it's a, you know, I think our list tends to fall to people who are older than us. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a movie that, uh, you know, like we were trying to put on some of the movies I think that really were important to us. And I think this movie does spawn so many other ones. And, and most recently, the movie like Palm Springs, which I think improves and does great stuff with. But at the end of the day, like, I want a Harold Ramis movie on this list. Would you um, sacrifice Ghostbusters for it? If I'm okay, Ghostbusters is one of my favorite movies of all time. Like, easily, uh, I love it. I don't, I have a hard time when I'm like, it's my favorite, but it's one of my favorites. I think the weight of this movie outweighs what Ghostbusters is. Ghostbusters is sci-fi, big concept, hilarious film, but there's no like there there as far as like uh, an emotional journey. Like this is a movie that I feel like is like a Wizard of Oz, like a It's a Wonderful mm-hmm. Life. I think it fits in that category of just being a great, it's a great moral. It's not over the head. It's really still funny. It works across the board. I think this is like a good, uh, that, that's what I would say. And by the way, we haven't talked about the one person that I think needs to be shot in the space. And that's Chris Elliott, who is always amazing in whatever I he does. Go back, watch his Letterman stuff. I mean, we didn't talk about him here because he's kind of just a side character. Who's he's just good. He's just, just good. good. Kills it. Every scene, Love he's funny. Kid. The way he puts his arm around Nancy, the way he stands, like he's, he plays it great. I love, I love Chris Elliott. I can't say enough uh, positive stuff about uh, Chris Elliott. Um, but uh, so, yeah, for that reason, I'd say let's put this movie into space. Over Ghostbusters. I'll, I'll buy that. Well, we still have a whole miniseries left to do, though, Paul. That's right. We do, we do, we do. All right. So what? Um, what is next, Amy? We're going to go to a darker movie about somebody who definitely learns a lesson the hard way. Oh, ho, ho. have you, do you know anything about A Place in the Sun, Paul? Not a thing. Oh, oh, you're in for it. Oh, we're going to do A Place in the Sun next. It's, this is not um, Sydney Portier, right? That's A Raisin in the Sun, right? Yeah, that's A Raisin in the Sun. This one, it's got Elizabeth Taylor, it's got Shelley Winters, and it's got Montgomery Cliff. And for you being a fan of James Dean the way that you were, I want you to see Montgomery Cliff too. You're gonna, okay. you're gonna, you're gonna have your socks knocked off. Shelley Winters is gonna knock your socks off. Oh my god! And Elizabeth Taylor, whew. I mean, this is like a good breath of, of fresh air. We've got like screaming, howling Elizabeth Taylor. Now we're gonna see like peak beauty Elizabeth Taylor. This is the unforgettable story of a boy from nowhere fighting desperately for his place in the sun, torn between the conflicting passions that shaped his destiny. Montgomery Clift, dazzled by the radiant beauty of Elizabeth Taylor, a girl so far above him she seemed like a goddess. 
but only too human when he held her in his arms. We'll think of something somehow, whatever way we can. We'll have such wonderful times together, just the two of us. Montgomery Cliff, bound by the warm and vital appeal of Shelley Winters, the girl who clung to him with an overwhelming hunger for love. Oh, I've been wanting to do that for such a long time. So did I. Will we see each other again like this? It's up to you. You've got to be careful. One love grew in the shadows of the night, sealed by a secret they could share with no one. The other love flamed in the bright light of gaiety and laughter, a need that drove him with all the recklessness of youth itself, a dream that was built on deception. I am so excited. And Amy, um, I guess uh, the only question I have for you right now is, uh, let's unspool it. Talk about Groundhog Day. Imagine bold, naturally aged Tillamook cheddar slices melting over a burger, eating handfuls of thick-cut cheddar shreds straight from the bag, taking a bite out of an irresistibly bold block of extra sharp cheddar cheese. <sighs> we know you want to get back to streaming, but wasn't it nice to daydream about cheese for a bit? Tillamook cheddar, extraordinary dairy. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.